Our scripture lesson today is the Christmas story from the Gospel of the Good News according to St. Luke chapter 2. Let's share in God's good word together. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a few weeks ago, we made the annual trek up to the attic to get down the Christmas stuff. Many of you all do that as well. You have it up there, and then it comes down. You crank open Uh, the different bins and boxes, and at our house, about every other box has this word on it, manger, fragile, be careful. And so we do, we open up and there's a manger, and we put it on the dining room table, and we open up another one and there's a tree, we open up and there's another manger, it goes in the other room, and another manger, and we, so we have mangers. Any of you all kind of manger crazy with us? I mean, we love the manger at our house for Christmas. There's, it encapsulates just that beautiful moment when God chose to come to earth. I visited with a, a couple a few years ago that sold life-size nativity sets, much like the one we have out in the gathering space. I love those. They're just awesome. And then I said, well, tell me about that. And they said, well, there's only one problem. They come as a set. You can't buy individual pieces. I said, well, why is that a problem? They said, because every year we have people come into the store, and you know what they ask for? Baby Jesus. Because baby Jesus has been stolen out of their front yard or out of their store. What is it about baby Jesus? Everybody wants baby Jesus. Nobody's missing a shepherd. Right? Is there something about that baby Jesus where you just, you just want to have him with you? you? You love him and be loved by him, and you go to the manger, and there he is, the, the center of the world, in a manger, in a feeding trough, and you just got to want to love him, pinch his cheeks, and take him home with you. And so people do. And then I wonder, where are all these baby Jesuses? Like, you never see them pop up on Amazon. Hey, hey, got an extra baby Jesus I stole. So what, what, what is it? about this. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. The most stolen Christmas decoration is Jesus himself. I find that both beautiful and odd and terrible all at the same time. Little baby Jesus. And, and I think part of it is that we are tempted to romanticize the manger and the birth of Jesus. You know, we sing the hymns about the, the angels singing and, and, and declaring his birth, you know, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. He's a newborn. He's crying. He's pooping. He's feeding. He's doing all the things that you don't want to think about God doing. It's crazy if you think about it. Why would God come as a baby? It's really beyond us to think about how primitive and difficult that manger would be, especially in Edmund. And Edmund, if you go to have a baby, it looks like this. It looks wonderful. Right, you got your bed, you got your sink, your mirrors, the big screen, you got your little seat there. And and the thing is, you know, we're just we're just like middle range birthing suites these days. You go to other places around the world, you have a tub, you have extra chairs, you have a view of the tropics. I mean that 
mean, if, if you're pregnant right now, that's where I'd be going. And that is a deal. Now, some people, they're more city-fied. I mean, they're very artsy. And so they, they need art all around them in their birthing suites. I mean, this is all real stuff that can happen. And so, you know, we like to romanticize. We like to think of the day that, you know, our babies were born or that God would be born. This is what you would expect. But God and God's wisdom was born here in a feeding trough. This is an actual trough uh, uh, in Israel. Uh, when Chantel and I visited the Holy Land, uh, we take you to a place that looks like this. And, uh, and they, they have these places where the animals would go. And, you know, what was amazing when I looked at it, I thought, man, that'd be an awesome crib. I mean, it fits a little baby. It doesn't tip over. It's solid. You know, it's not like those wooden things you see, you know, in replicas. I mean, that, that's a pretty good crib. Perfect for the baby Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth. And he comes and he's laid in, in one of these rocks that's, you know, scraped out. Just the perfect size for a little baby or for some water or for some food for an animal. No, it wasn't, it wasn't romantic at all. As a matter of fact, imagine this with me. You're about... Hmm, Nine months pregnant. You remember that? Some, some of you ladies remember that. I don't remember that. Uh, but some of you do. I remember when Chantel was nine months pregnant. You didn't cross her. I mean, it was like, whatever she wants, nine months, she's going to get. And imagine you coming home and you said, dear, guess what? The governor has said uh, that we're going to take a 90-mile hike tomorrow. Because we've got to go re-register. We've got to get a new driver's license, in essence. Uh, and you've got to go to the city for that. And so from the crow flies from Nazareth to Bethlehem is 70 miles. But of course you can't get there that way. You actually have to go by the water source. You have to go around that part of Samaria down by the Jordan. uh, Come take a right at Jericho. Come into Jerusalem and then drop down Bethlehem. That's 90 miles. Nine zero. As in almost 100. And you're walking it. Nine months pregnant. This is the birth of our Savior. I, I don't know how much talking was going on between Joseph and Mary. You've been on those road trips. This was a toughie, right? And, and, and we don't know how they got there other than it looks like by foot. I mean, certainly not rail or plane or, you know, car. I mean, they're, they're walking it between 70 and 90 miles. And, and it's been really hard for me to get my mind around that. And, and that you would, you would get there. You know how bone tired you would be walking, pregnant, 90 miles? And you actually get there. You're, you're there. And you're like, oh, thank the Lord Almighty. I am here. I, you know, I've had contractions for the last three miles. And you know, it's, this thing's going to happen. And then when you get there, when they arrived, all the ends were what, friends? Full. Sold out. And, and, and Mary's thinking, maybe I should marry someone else. I mean, we should have gotten here a little sooner because all the world had to go register. You know, Joseph should have known that he wasn't the only guy going to Bethlehem, right? So we could have left like two weeks ago and settled in by now. No, 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 not her husband. Her husband's like, no, honey, I got a little more work to do. Let's go last minute. Anybody married to that guy? Right? So I wonder what that trip would have been like. So they get there, and it's full, and she's going into labor, right? Her water breaks, and they're at the end. So I wonder how that was. I got a tiny, tiny glimpse of that on the second night of our marriage. Um, I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time. We got married in Tulsa on a Friday night on Labor Day weekend. And so this is Chantel. This is her car. She had a Dodge, red Dodge Daytona Turbo. The thing could move. It was nice. It was also a ticket magnet. But it was, it was, it was great. So we took everything that she owned, and we piled it and stuffed it in the back of her hatchback. Couldn't see anything, so she, you know, we used the, the side mirrors. 
And um, we took off. And we knew that we were going to go all the way down I-40 to Statesville, Hangar Right, and then we'd be at Charlotte. And it was going to take us two days, and we were good. And in our courting, we had joked, um, I don't really have anything against Elvis. I just don't get the people that are all Elvis people. If that's you, don't hate me. It's just, I just don't get it. Uh, and, th- and that's okay. But she said, you know, I think partly just to goat me, um, but she goes, you know what I've always wanted to do? And I was like, what? She goes, I want to go to Graceland. I want to tour Graceland. I want to see the plane. You know, I want, to, I want to do the whole thing. And I'm like, really? She's like, yeah, I do. I was like, okay. Well, we're going to ride by there on our way, you know, to Charlotte. She's like, okay, great, let's do that. So on our second night of marriage, we're going to go to Graceland, and we're going to stay at a place called Wilson World. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, I think it's closed now for good reasons. But it overlooked Graceland, and it had, like, these big velvet Elvises, like, all through all the rooms. And I was just like, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to take her to Wilson World, and it'll be hilarious, and we'll, you know, we'll have a story to tell our kids about. So uh, we, we start out, and then as we're leaving, my folks and her folks say, you know what, it's getting late. There's no way you're making it to Memphis uh, by the time you need to check in. You're going to lose your deposit. You know, don't do that. Just, just cancel the reservation. And being 23 and 22, we looked at each other and said, well, you know, parents are smart. So we just canceled the reservation. So we did. And then we went, and you know what, in that red Dodge Daytona Turbo, we were early. We, we smoothed on in, and we go up, and we're like, hey. We know we canceled, but is there any chance we can just have that back? You know, because, like, who's going to stay at Wilson World on Labor Day weekend? Apparently everyone we know. Booked out solid, full. So then we looked around some other places in Memphis. They were full. Apparently Labor Day is a big racing weekend in NASCAR. And so we're, we're out that deal, and there was, like, an Elvis convention. I don't know what 91 was for Elvis, but it was a big deal to some people. And so we, we drove on down I-40 a little ways. Nothing. A little further. Nothing. 88 miles later, it's about 2 in the morning now, we're in Jackson, Tennessee. No room in the inn. And I'm driving. Chantel's looking at me. I'm looking for a place to stay. Because she's thinking, dude, really? Like, I'm married, I, like this is this be a very short marriage, like two days. <laughs> and then I see it in the distance. My only hope, days in, with the little sun. It was a sign from God. Days in. So I pull in. And I say, stay in the car. I'm like, you know, man up and do this thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm walking over and, and I knock on, you know, the glass window thing. The dude was asleep. I was like, ah, you know, I scared him. And I'm like, seriously, I just got married yesterday. It's our second night of marriage. You got to give me a room. Like, let me stay anywhere, lobby, something, because otherwise we're in the car. And he's like, no, it is full out. I mean, we're nothing. I'm like, oh, second night of marriage. Maybe my last night of marriage. I'm going to be sleeping in the car. And then it dawned on me that a friend of mine that I had done a fellowship with the year before um, lived in Jackson, and he was working at the television station there. So I called him up, and I said, Hey, Carrie, I know we haven't talked in over a year, but can I stay at your house tonight? And he goes, Sure, my roommate's out of town. That would be great. I'm just getting off work. I'll meet you there. You know, it would be awesome. So we get to Carrie's house about between 2 and 3 in the morning, and he and I stay up, and we visit, and it's great. And Chantel has the great luxury of staying in the extra room that her roommate, that his roommate, um, was in, uh, who was also a dude, and you know looked like he hadn't kept his room or cleaned his bed in well all year. So the, thank you for staying with me. I really appreciate it. It's just oh, horrible night. I was fun for me, but she was like, "Whoo, what did I do?" You know. And so I think I think it was a difficult, difficult thing. To, to go and 
know that there's no room for them. I can't imagine what it would have been like if she was pregnant. Can you imagine? You see, the original Greek word for the inn is actually kataluma, which means guest or inn or overflow area. So as Chantel stayed in the guest room or the extra room, um, we don't know whether that was um, an extra room on the side of one of Joseph's family. Uh, probably so. It could have been used for animals. could have been for travelers. It's hard to tell. All we know is it wasn't nice. And it wasn't very safe. And it wasn't enclosed. It might look something like this. When people have babies today, often they will have them in a beautiful, wonderful women's hospital in a luxury suite. But in Jesus' day, of course, it wasn't like that. And even in lots of places, like Guatemala, even today, it's not like that. You'll have a house for maybe two or three uh, generations of your family. And then just off the house connected will be an outbuilding. Obviously, this is quite updated from something uh, Jesus would have been born in. Uh, but this is where they place the animals. And so uh, you come in this way, you can just see there's not much to it. But more than likely, this is the sort of space that Jesus would have been born in. So that was Friday in Guatemala. You remember, friends, that two-thirds of the world live in that kind of housing, if, if they're fortunate. I mean, that's a nice house in Guatemala, right? And so uh, what Mary and Joseph get to, what, what really anybody who's nine months pregnant about to have a baby is looking for is anything between them and the outside world, the harsh realities of the wind, the weather, the rain, the cold. And so that's what they could find. And so that's where they went. And so there, it's one thing to say, well... You know, how is it that somebody would steal a baby Jesus? But a bigger question is, how in the world could Mary and Joseph and God himself allow Jesus to be born in that kind of a place? I mean, this is the God of the universe, the creator of the heaven, the stars, the moon, and the sun. How is it that God would allow his own son to be born there? What happened? Well, you know, in my worst moments... I think Gabriel just got the directions wrong. He's like, go here. Oh, oops, they're full. Well, no, it's not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's by design, right? It's not a mistake or an accident. Those are your blanks there if you're following on your sermon notes. It's not. God intended to come as baby Jesus. God intended to be born in a barn, to be born in the manger, to be born in a place where anybody, anybody of any social stratus could come and find him. To love him. To be loved by him. He was born intentionally in a place where he could be found. Where he could be loved. And where he could love. The place and the time, the lowly shepherds, the sheep, the angels as messengers and the shepherds as messengers. All a part of God's good plan. Not a mistake. And I wonder so often in our lives when something seems really difficult or odd or hard, we think, man, God has messed this up. That's a mistake. That's an accident. And it's in those very moments we need to kind of step back and go, okay, hold on, God, what are you doing? Where are you in this? Get into this with me. What are you up to? You see, from the very moment that we see the God himself in this little feeding trough, we should begin to understand that the entirety of Jesus' ministry is going to be about humility, about showing up in unlikely places, in places that the higher-ups and the big power people would have never expected to find him and kept him safe as well. Had he been born in a palace, he may not have made it two or three days. But born in a manger in a tiny little nowhere town. Bethlehem is, is literally the place of bread. Just a, little, just a little kind of place where people had bakeries and carpentry shops. 
Nobody expected God to show up there. And I think it's important because God did not want to conquer us or scare us. God wants to love us and be loved by us. And and if that's the plan, to redeem all of humanity, if that's the plan to save that which had been lost with Adam and Eve, that which had been separated to bring back and to love and be loved, how better than as a baby? I mean, y'all like babies, don't you? I mean, if you want something to love, a baby's a very good way to come. If you want to be loved, a baby is the, is the best way to go. And, and, of course, this is in stark contrast to Caesar Augustus, the ruler of all the world as they knew it, who came in power. And, of course, it's true that Jesus could come with a thousand angels and a flaming sword or however he wanted to, but that wasn't God's intent all along. It wasn't to crush us or make us submit. It was to be loved by us. So he comes as a baby. He comes in the manger. The plan all along, friends, is to win us back. It was then, it is now. David Callis writes that the manger is God's sneak attack. I love that. We expect him to come one way, and he comes in the other way. Callis writes, I call Christmas God's sneak attack because he didn't come into the world marching through the front door. He didn't come with power or prominence, with influence or importance. He didn't come into the spotlight. He came into the world through the back door. He snuck in. He just snuck in. And change the whole world forever. You see, God wants more than submission. Now, our obedience is important, but it's not because God's up in heaven going, Oh, I hope they do what I ask them. No, not at all. It's that we are blessed when we do what God asks us to do. God's laws are for our sake, not for God's. God's submission is important, yes, but more important than that, God wants a relationship with us. God wants us to know him so well that it's second nature for us to do what God asks us to do because it's what's best for us. And best for the world, best for humanity, best for our children and our grandchildren and all the world. God wants more than submission. He wants a relationship with you. The manger and the cross both, they show God will go anywhere, even to a manger, even to the cross, so that he can have a relationship with you and with me to make it happen. John 1.14 says it like this, And the word became flesh, human, mortal, and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. This is the incarnation. Theologians call this Jesus being fully God and fully divine. Fully human, possessing a body, living in space and time just as we do. Human in every way except that he was always without sin. Always did the right thing at the right time for the right reasons with God the Father. He submitted easily because he had such a close relationship with the Father. He had human senses and feelings and emotions and he looked upon other mortals with compassion not disdain and he laid his hands upon them and he touched the lame and the blind and the prostitutes and the tax collectors everybody that was outside jesus went to them and reached and touched them and loved them he heard their cries for mercy from those who were afflicted with emotional and psychological spiritual and physical pain and he went right to it and healed them he drank from the same cup as the disciples ate the same fish ate the same bread Cried with heartbreak with Mary when she lost her brother Lazarus, one of his close friends. And Jesus laughed at the dinners and the marriages and at the jokes that they would tell. And he felt the heartbreak and the sting and the ache of what it is to be betrayed by those closest to him and denied and abandoned in his time of need. God knows all of that. And God knows what you're going through because he became human. You see, until Jesus... People believed in the pantheon of gods, uh, of the gods of the Greeks, like Zeus, 
uh, and others and, and on, on all, all the hosts of heaven. But those folks didn't have a relationship with mortals. They were completely other. Jesus completely changed all of that to come and to be like us so that he could empathize with our weakness. He could empathize and know what it is to be like we are so that he could come and walk right alongside us. The creator of the universe took on human flesh. God personally stepped down into the world to walk among us. And why would God do this? According to 1 John, it says this, The Son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And the Hebrew understanding of devil was everything that worked against God. All the broken places that Jesus was healed. Um, Jesus came to make right that which the devil had destroyed. All the separation that had happened between God and humanity, Jesus came to reconnect. That was the plan all along. And so he came as a baby in humility so that all could find him. And the love of God is reaching out to us, ready to set us free, you and I and every person on the planet for all time and all millennia. That's why he came. And the prophets foretold this. Jeremiah 31.3 says it like this. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with what kind of love? Everlasting. Well, how long is that? Forever and ever and ever. There's never a moment, friends. Now, now I hope if you don't catch anything else today that you catch this. There's never a moment in your life, in your past, or even in your future, that God is not loving you perfectly. God loves you perfectly with an everlasting love. And it's not just the love. Maybe you've heard this. You've heard people say, well, I love him, but I don't like him very much right now. It's not even like that with God. Because not only is there an everlasting love, it says this, I have drawn you with what kind of kindness? Unfailing kindness. So no matter what you're going through, no matter what you have been through, God is loving you and his kindness is unfailing. It's unfailing. Now, that doesn't mean that we might not have to look pretty hard for it sometimes. But it's always there. An everlasting love and unfailing kindness. And in this kindness and in this love, Jesus' reign and character is always one of humility. Always one of humility. And sometimes I think as Christians we miss this. That if we're going to call Jesus teacher, master, and Lord, the one washing feet at the moment at the end of his life, then he says, then you need to do what I do. Pick up the towel. Wash the feet, wash the dishes, serve others in humility. Our Lord, King of the world, served as a humble servant, and we are to do that as well, to serve in humility. I wonder what this Christmas might look like if all the Christians of our community went out and served in humility this Christmas, or even stayed in and served in humility this Christmas. You see, Jesus taught that true greatness comes not by exalting yourself, but by serving others. That's the way of Christ, serving others. Philippians 2, Paul writes this to the early church in Philippi so that they wouldn't forget and they wouldn't miss it. That though Jesus was God fully, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Yes, he gave them up willingly. And he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Fully human with its limitations. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself. He didn't exalt himself. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. But notice, you have to ask yourself every time you see this in the Bible, what's the therefore, therefore? And the answer is God elevated him because he humbled himself. He didn't just exalt him for no reason. He exalted him because he had chosen to humble himself to serve others. And I wonder what our homes would be like this week 
if at every turn we were trying to outdo one another in love, in humility, in service to our wife, or our husband, or our children, or our parents, or our brothers, or our sisters, or even weird Uncle Bill. Now, I love my Bill. He's not too weird. But, I mean, we all have a weird Uncle Bill, don't we? I mean, everybody, everybody's got that person in our families that are hard to love. We're to humble ourselves and serve them, to serve them. God elevated him then to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at every name, at the name of Jesus, every knee, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, Master, to the glory of God the Father. And even though this is true, even though he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, what we see Jesus doing is reaching out to hurting people and to the forgotten people. That's who Jesus is. That's who we are to be this Christmas. You might say even at Christmas. You might say especially at Christmas because it's about Christ and his life. And his whole life from manger to the cross was one of humility to the hurting and to the forgotten. Jesus wants to be found. Jesus wants to be known. That's your blank there. God wants to be known even if it involves a manger. And I wonder sometimes if, if the problem with the church today is that we might want to be known, but we don't really want to have to go to a manger or cross to get there. But that's what it takes to go to where the people are. To love the people as they are, not as we would have them to be. So our action steps, friends, are these. How will you show humility this Christmas? Make a plan now. Think about your week coming up this week. How will you intentionally show humility to others? Because when we do, when we serve in that way, it changes the world. There was an American named Will Fish who volunteered to go to Moscow in that time uh, when Russia had been a very harsh place to live. And Will went there with another American and he chose to work with orphans who had been abused and abandoned and left in the care of a government-run program um, that was very difficult on the little children there. And they shared this story of a special Christmas. It's called A Russian Christmas Story for Always. And Will Fish writes it like this. He says, As the Christmas season was approaching, they prepared to share the traditional Christmas story with the orphans who would be hearing it for the very first time. And they told them about Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem and finding no room in the inn. And they explained that Jesus was born in a stable and placed in a manger. The children and the workers of the orphanages sat attentively, listening with amazement. And when they finished telling the story, they gave each of the children three small pieces of cardboard. And they asked them to make a simple manger. And they also gave each child a small square cut from a napkin for baby Jesus. And as Will walked among the children to see if they needed help, he came to a little boy named Misha, who appeared to be about six years old. Now he noticed that Misha's manger had not one baby Jesus, but two. And he called for a translator to ask about what that little boy was doing. And so though Misha had heard the Christmas story just once, he accurately relayed what had happened until he came to the part where Mary put baby Jesus in the manger. And then he began to ad-lib and make the story his own, and he said this. And when Maria laid the baby in the manger, Jesus looked at me and asked if I had a place to stay. And I told him, no. I have no mama. I have no papa. So I don't have any place to stay. Then Jesus told me I could stay with him. But I told him I couldn't. Because I didn't have a gift to give him like everybody else did. 
But I wanted to stay with Jesus so much, the little boy said. So I thought maybe if I kept Jesus warm, that that would be a good gift. So I asked Jesus, if I keep you warm, will that be a good enough gift? And Jesus told me, if you keep me warm, that will be the best gift anyone has ever given me. So I got into the manger with Jesus. Then Jesus looked at me and he told me I could stay with him for always. For always. And as Misha finished, his eyes were brimming with tears that spilled down his little cheeks and he covered his face with his hand and he lowered his head to the table and he sobbed and he sobbed because Will understood what this little boy was going through. And he writes these about little Misha. He says, this little orphan had found someone who would never abandon him nor abuse him. Someone who would stay with him for always. This is the promise of Jesus. He will never abandon you or forsake you. He will stay with us for always. It's stunning, isn't it, how approachable Jesus makes himself. God himself comes to us that he will never leave us, even if he has to meet us in an orphanage or a manger or at the cross. I invite you to, to receive him so that you may never be alone again. And I invite you as you follow him to look for those places that you will serve others, to serve others this week. Because, friends, as we do, miracles happen. Miracles happen. Many of you know that for the last seven days, I've been with a team uh, in Guatemala. And in Guatemala, we drilled a well uh, for a, a village called La Tortuga that had no water uh, available to them that was clean or healthy. And I met this little one. She's probably three or four. Her name is Milagros. And I was told between services that, do you know what Milagros translates to? Miracle. And isn't it a miracle that God would choose a handful of gringos from America to fly to Guatemala, from Edmond, Oklahoma, to fly to Guatemala to create a miracle that this girl might live, that she might grow up and be strong, that she might not die of parasites or cholera, that she has a future now because of God's call of humility to get a little dirty to eat food that you can't pronounce. To, you know, sweat it out in 88 degrees while you all are in 10 degrees. It was horrible. <laughs> Milagros. As we serve in humility, miracles happen. Miracles grow. Miracles inhabit the earth. So, friends, I want to encourage you with all that I am to seek Jesus wherever he may be. And invite him into your home. Because that little miracle that you saw was in essence born in a manger. Certainly not a birthing suite. And the other 100, 120 children that we met this week, all little miracles made by our God who comes to his children wherever we may be. I invite you to go to him this morning. Amen.